Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club show. My guest today is Elias Dakwar and he's an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. He has conducted laboratory and clinical investigations of ketamine infusion and mindfulness training to treat addiction. Maybe you have heard about ketamine in a clubbing context and how people use it, say, for example, at Berghain. But that's not what we are talking about today. Ketamine is a medication mainly used for starting and maintaining anesthesia. It induces a trance-like state while providing pain relief, sedation and memory loss. So now, as we speak, ketamine is researched and used as an antidepressant and as a tool to support the outcome of talk psychotherapy. Scientists' teams from Yale call it a game-changer for psychiatry and mental health. The company Field Trip from Canada has successfully opened ketamine clinics. And this is possible because ketamine is legal in a clinical context. I talked to Elias how ketamine works, why it triggers reactions in your cortex that enable brain connections to regrow. We also talk about how ketamine in the context of psychotherapy works and how it can be the tool to help you in talk therapy to get to the real topics that you're dealing with. I recently started a ketamine psychotherapy to engage in my own questions and inquiries in my own life. So far, the experience is a very interesting one and I keep you posted. But now, please enjoy the show with Elias Dakwar. Good morning to upstate New York. This is where you are right now, already for a while. Right. Uh, we have the great pleasure to talk with Elias Dakwar, the Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University, right? Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. So, and the first time... I've seen you doing a talk was last year at the Horizons Conference, 2019 in New York City, and you talked about ketamine and psychiatry. And although I was already engaged in the psychedelic world and everything, I've never heard of ketamine as a, yeah, I mean, neither as a psychedelic nor as something that is explored already for a while now in psychiatry. So and you are one of the yeah, most kind of successful scientists researching this new kind of, let's call it antidepressant at this point. And um, please let us know how did you get into the whole world of ketamine research? Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's great to be here, first of all, and I appreciate the work you're doing to spread the message about new research that's being done and, and new treatment modalities. So my entry into the, the world of ketamine began many years ago, 13, 14 years ago, when I started developing an interest in researching new treatments for addiction. And I was primarily interested in how we might bring mindfulness to addiction. Mindfulness being the capacity for 
a very open, expansive, non-reactive, non-judgmental, compassionate perspective on oneself, on one's thoughts, emotions, on the world. And I felt that mindfulness could be a very helpful perspective for people with addiction to develop. So I began to research the usual ways that we develop mindfulness in people using meditation training, helping them learn how to approach things from a different perspective, to recognize that feelings pass, that thoughts pass, that we don't need to necessarily get entangled in them or act on them. And I thought that addiction, given how reactive people can be and how um, they tend to have uh, a lot of entanglement with their cravings, with certain behaviors, with their thoughts, that strategy would be particularly helpful. So I began to do very conventional mindfulness research, teaching people how to meditate, etc., with cocaine addiction and cannabis addiction. And while there was some benefit, it was very difficult for some people to really engage with it because they had so many of the vulnerabilities that make being mindful difficult. They were already dealing with very intense craving and had very fixed perspectives and they weren't necessarily motivated to spend that time developing silence and stillness that meditation practice requires. And it raised questions about whether there was a way to ease people into that, whether there's some kind of medication or other strategy that would provide a window into what being mindful might be like, into developing greater distance from the usual coordinates of thinking, acting, feeling of identity, and having a longstanding interest in non-ordinary experiences more generally, you know, from the plant medicine world, from you know, so-called psychedelic world, uh, I began to consider using something like that to help facilitate the process. While at the same time, attentive to the fact that I was in a very prestigious research hospital, you know, the Columbia University Medical Center, that had uh, very particular ideas of how research should be done and through what mechanisms, through what kind of grant support. And as a young investigator, I was also you know, interested in making sure that I could attract funding from a fairly broad source. So I couldn't really go down the serotonergic hallucinogen route using psilocybin or LSD or DMT because those are illegal. And the kind of government funding that keeps academic institutions like Columbia afloat would not be interested in funding that kind of research. Um, I also was interested in something that's a bit more short acting than psilocybin, LSD, or ayahuasca, something that could be given in a in a very time-limited way, under an hour, without the time commitments that some of these more intensive um, agents require. And also, for research purposes, I was interested in something that had a lot of, um, let's say, neural explanations behind it for why it might be helpful. So at that time, ketamine was just emerging as a potentially powerful and fast-acting antidepressant, working through mechanisms that were primarily biological. Um, at the time, a lot of interest in how it 
Glutamate modulation might be helpful. Ketamine is a, is a very potent glutamate modulator. Glutamate is, is a, an excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, it had a very long track record as a medication that, that had been used as an anesthetic since the 1960s. Um, it had also been used in sub-anesthetic infusions for pain conditions. And then there was this new um, kind of emerging finding that it might be helpful for depression in sub-anesthetic doses as well through similar glutamate modulatory mechanisms, but it might also promote neurogenesis, meaning it can help synapses form new connections, form, help neurons develop greater branching, which is something that tends to be limited in, in depression. With the chronic stress of depression, neurons become pruned, um, it's called, and lose some of the connectedness that a healthier brain might have. So these were some of the biological explanations. Mm -hmm. The funding that most research in the United States receives invokes biological mechanisms, you know, rightly or wrongly, that's the way it works. But my interest in ketamine, again, wasn't from the biological perspective, it was how might it create a window for, for mindfulness strategies? Uh, how might it help people access a way of viewing themselves in the world that would lend itself to deepening mindfulness? Mm -hmm. And so I began to do research with ketamine to, to explore how it might fit into that model, how it might create that window, help people become more motivated to deepen mindfulness, how it might create an experience that would support a meditation practice. And we can talk more about the research if you like, but that, that's how I kind of came into the world mm -hmm. of ketamine, first through mindfulness and then investigating a, a medication that could deepen that practice. And I mean, we also should say maybe that in a hospital context, ketamine is absolutely legal. You don't have the problem, like you mentioned it, like there's no problem with a still illegal substance, for example. I think that's also probably contributing to a better research right. situation. But uh, <clears throat> I feel like since you had this talk last year, I feel like this year has put ketamine <laughs> in front of, I don't know, like I feel like it's suddenly one of the big topics in the psychedelic world, I mean, first of all, because also you had this uh, nasal spray that came out this year that you can, I think, use in, in the US already under certain circumstances. But I feel also because, and that's why I also wanted to have it as a, almost like a, yeah, as a topic for November, because I feel it's also coming forward so much because you can do it in a certain way right now in certain, of course, situations with um, a hospital involved or with practices that are working with a hospital or in Canada, um, you have field trip that has already opened a lot of ketamine clinics. And I think in New York, there's one too, right? I, I guess at that moment. Right. Yeah. And I feel it's also because people can use this now. So in a way that, for example, if you suffer from, let's say, suicidal thoughts and you're already on medication. So here you would only have the chance to go to psychiatry, basically, and probably nobody would like to do that in that circumstances. So 
or actually or you, you couldn't even go because they only take a certain amount of people right now so it's a very complicated situation for people with big mental health problems right now so it seems like it's almost like an ambulance <laughs> in a weird way like a psychedelic ambulance you could call it right now ketamine so can you talk a little bit about what's the situation um, if you have like a let's say like an emergency either with yourself or with your family where somebody is really suffering from the very weird situation the whole world is living in right now and has to undertake um, several efforts to just kind of maybe try to figure this out with the support of ketamine at the moment. You, you brought up a very good point about ketamine, that it's readily available. Um, it's been used in medical settings for a very long time. And so it's basically like any other procedure that one can receive in a clinic or hospital. And the same goes right now for its psychiatric uses. So even though it hasn't been um, in the United States FDA approved for depression, mm -hmm. it's very commonly used, um, as you said, by clinics across the country. And even in COVID, when you know, the usual restrictions apply and, and you know, one has to you know, be a bit more careful about seeing people in person, ketamine infusions are still taking place. And the virtue, as you said, is that it works very quickly. So if there's an emergency situation, person is struggling with depression, struggling with severe anxiety, struggling with suicidality, Ketamine is one of the few interventions we have in psychiatry, one of the few legal interventions that can turn it around potentially quite quickly. Antidepressants take weeks to months to work if they work at all. Ketamine, according to most research that's been done, can help people within 24 to 72 hours, very robustly in a majority of cases. And that creates a really tremendous opportunity for psychiatrists to address conditions that previously would have required hospitalization so that people can stabilize on medication before they feel comfortable to be on their own. Um, it can provide immediate relief to people who are otherwise severely suffering. And also, uh, and this has been of great interest to me, it can help facilitate the psychotherapy process. So in addition to helping out certain symptoms, it can help with personal exploration, with changing one's perspective, one's behavior, um, one's core beliefs, the sorts of things that psychotherapy also takes quite a long time to accomplish. Ketamine can catalyze the process. It can provide an experience and a space for doing, doing the kind of work that otherwise might take a long time. Well, I mean, we can talk about it because I started ketamine therapy <laughs> just a month ago, just to be really equipped when I have the podcast mm -hmm. with you. <laughs> no, because also yeah. I did it because exactly of the reason you just described, because several kind of yeah points were leading to it. First of all, you can't really go 
anywhere right now to, let's say, to do another psychedelic retreat, like the one, for example, in, in the Netherlands. I mean, you could, but it would be very complicated. And then since yesterday, for example, you kind of can't anymore. So first of all, you got to stay where you are. Second, I had the experience that I started like, I think a year ago, my own, let's say, psychedelic journey in terms of therapy. And I just had this moment a couple of weeks ago where I was like, wow, something is really coming up again that I would like to work on again. So, and like you say, I mean, I did, I think, I don't know, like five therapies in my life, like just talk therapy. And for me, they didn't work. I mean, for other people, they might, for me, they didn't. So, and then researching ketamine, I was like, wow, okay, I could actually try to find a practice here where I live in Berlin. I found one and I started and it's a very interesting experience how it feels more psychotherapy than psychedelics because we're just basically, like you explained it, we're reaching a certain place in my psyche or in my mind that I would not actually reach without the support or the tool of ketamine. And uh, of course, right now there's, <laughs> there's a big break because, you know, you can't go anywhere. We're in lockdown. But Even the three sessions I did in the last couple of weeks when it was still possible, they brought already so much material to me that I can, even if I now have to take a break because of COVID and I can't go anywhere to do it again, and unless maybe at the end of the year, I still can work with that material in meditation, in breath work that it actually delivered to me. So, And since this podcast or this show is a lot about how we can use psychedelics in the future exactly as a tool to kind of bring up these topics that we wouldn't otherwise bring up or it would take another, I don't know, 20 years. So how do you see ketamine therapy in the next couple of, let's say, years? Because obviously like, we have clinics in the US and, and um, Canada already where you could just kind of walk in and do a treatment, but it often seems that there's no therapy attached to this or very rarely Well, I'm, I'm glad that you've educated yourself <laughs> personally before this before podcast we talk. to see what <laughs> ketamine does. And it, it, it is true that because ketamine's entry into mainstream psychiatry was from a very biological place, this is something similar to Prozac that you give and it helps depression much more quickly. Therapy isn't needed. It's just an intervention like electroconvulsive therapy. Wow. Um, because it entered psychiatry in that way, um, at least initially, it was being approached as something that was purely an intervention that didn't require the kind of personal work, the space for psychotherapeutic reflection that psychotherapy can provide. But I think as um, we've begun to look at ketamine and what it does more um, broadly and to really appreciate the psychoactive effects and the experiential aspects of, of its mechanisms, there's greater understanding of how important it is to embed ketamine into psychotherapy. And there are different ways that ketamine might help psychotherapy. So roughly speaking, there are two models by which to understand how a medicine like ketamine could fit into psychotherapy. There's um, uh, something that actually 
a German developed uh, <laughs> called psycholytic therapy. Mm-hmm. So psycholytic therapy refers to how a medicine might ease away some of the inhibitions, some of the walls, some of the hurdles that are important for processing material, for accessing them, for being able to look critically at one's life. Um, The other model is the psychedelic model, which is that the medicine creates this very profound, intense experience that represents almost its own world. Mm -hmm. And it can be such such a disruption, such an interruption that the experience itself is helpful. And the therapy is intended to prepare people for that experience, to help them kind of understand it and and then move forward from there. So uh, an example of a psychedelic model would be the mystical type experiences that are reported to occur with psilocybin that may have actually very little to do with one's personal history, Mm -hmm. a sense of communion with the cosmos and of an appreciation of the interconnectedness of all things. And that itself can be therapeutic um, according to the psychedelic model. So those are the two models, roughly speaking, that um, can exist for integrating medicine into therapy. And I think ketamine can can be helpful in both regards. Ketamine, as, as you experienced, can, can help create the space for reflecting on things and for processing things that otherwise might have been very difficult to process. It has a, this way of giving us a vantage point from the void. We're able to kind of look at our lives from, from a point of nowhere. So we're not as encumbered by the usual ideas and stories mm-hmm. and thoughts. And we're able to look at things almost with fresh eyes with alien eyes, that can be very helpful, especially if we're locked into a certain way of of viewing things. And that capacity as well of kind of seeing things from a very fresh perspective is, is very much what mindfulness is about. So you can also leverage that perspective, not simply to process certain material, but also to train that capacity so that it can continue to have an impact after the experience is over. But ketamine can also create very profound psychedelic experiences. It does, yeah. That are more universal and less, less personal. Um, you know, a sense of oneness with everything, um, a sense of ecstatic communion with true reality, um, maybe even a sense of dissolving into some sacred void, you know, beyond beyond self, beyond other, beyond reality, beyond life, death. So that, that experience um, is also known to occur with ketamine and might also be used as a therapeutic disruption of sorts. I thought it's like almost, I never thought about this, but there could also be like a chemical mindfulness because if we hear mindfulness these days, we always think of doing yoga, being in nature, drinking green juice. <laughs> So, but why not thinking about a chemical mindfulness? And I think that's a kind of a interesting elevator pitch for ketamine. One thing I want to say is that, 
I mean, the first two or three sessions I did, even the third one, the interesting thing is I feel it's really challenging. It's not something where like, wow, amazing, now I just check out and then that's it. It's a challenging experience also. And um, the things it's bringing up maybe in, in a different costume than the original thing you want to work on and then you kind of integrate it like with your therapist uh, afterwards or while you're in it. So, and that's something I was, I find very interesting because you never really think about this or you hardly hear or read about it, that psychedelic experiences now in terms of ketamine, as we speak about that, is also challenging. It's not always like, oh, I was kind of, you know, high and then it was great and then I was done and it was fantastic. So, and then since you also, and I was very fascinated by your talk about using ketamine treatment against cocaine addiction. So maybe you can tell us a little bit what happens in the brain or at the moment as you research this from somebody who tries to get rid of his or hers addiction and would use ketamine therapy as a tool to look into their addiction in a different way. Because I feel what I hear and read is that a lot of people are relapsing these days since they can't go to either to a rehab because they're closing or because they spent a lot of time on their own and also because they can't go to their usual social places anymore. So maybe you can explain a little bit what it does in the brain to kind of work on the addiction problem. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said first about chemical mindfulness. I've come to see drug use as very much motivated by the same impulse, which is to feel better, irrespective of what's going on in one's life. So, you know, I might not have relationships going on, might be feeling poor and angry and isolated and everything else. But by doing this, I can feel better. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a very understandable human impulse, you know, to feel okay, irrespective of one's circumstances. Now, the trap of addiction is that the chemical mindfulness, so to speak, feeling okay and open, regardless of what's happening becomes the only mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So the person continues to turn to the drug to, to feel better and becomes unfortunately enslaved to it. And I think that is ultimately the, the crux of what happens in addiction, that, that the, um, the feeling of peace and okayness that the drug provides monopolizes one's life and the person loses sight of other ways that there might be opportunity for feeling okay. Mm-hmm. And in fact, things start to get worse for the person because the person is turning to that one thing for consolation as opposed to having a broader perspective. And so how might that be corrected? And, and what I've found in my, in my research is that creating an opportunity for the person to recognize that okayness, feeling okay, feeling at peace 
irrespective of what's happening, even if there's challenges, even if life isn't quite right, that that's something that can be cultivated, that we have responsibility for that. And there's a way of accessing that through things other than the drug. And ketamine does provide a chemical mindfulness, so to speak, but it also, I think like other um, substances of the sort, it creates an opening within, within oneself that can extend beyond the direct chemical effects. An opening for realizing that maybe it's possible through thinking about things differently, through being kinder to myself, through giving myself opportunity for creating peace and silence, stillness. Maybe it's possible for me to extend this feeling of peace and freedom day to day, moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I read today, there's an article saying, I mean, in context of as ketamine being an antidepressant, that uh, new studies are showing that people just using it as therapy, like hate themselves less and that the self-hatred would be often something that's one of the worst things if it comes to depression. Mm -hmm. But let's talk a little bit also about the, the substance because, I mean, of course, to me, the most fascinating thing is that you, I mean, you, you walk into the room, you go to therapy, like you would go to therapy, you lie down like a doctor is coming and giving you the IV and it has to be a doctor that makes the whole thing legal. And then you're basically um, under the influence for, let's say, an hour. And then like 15 minutes later, after your IV, the IV is done, you're basically back to normal. I mean, you can't drive anymore and you shouldn't <laughs> take an Uber or Lyft, <laughs> whatever you are, taxi. But so it's very fascinating to me that you basically you come home and you can make yourself a burger and you watch a show and you're like, okay, wait, but an hour before I was under the influence of a, I mean, some people would say it's a psychedelic. So, and that also is like very seducing in a way that people say, well, I just, let me just take a quick stop at the Ketamine Clinic next, tomorrow. So, and and I remember you talked in your in your um, Horizons talk also about this, that one of the biggest maybe challenges in the future is that how to, let's say, not become a ketamine addict in the same way and that what you talked about earlier. So because it's like so, it seems like it's such an easy thing to do these days. Yeah, it's a very fast acting medicine. Um, it's, it has a, a short half-life, so it comes on quickly and it leaves your body quickly. And it doesn't have many lingering effects, yeah. at least psychoactively. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, your experience with it is, is the norm. That it, it comes on quick, it lasts for about an hour, you go deep in, and then half an hour later you're back in, you know, ordinary reality and you're in your bed and watch a show and you're like yeah maybe a little wiser perhaps if uh, you approached it in the right spirit and maybe a bit more open to certain things but you're back to back to ordinary reality and and mm -hmm. that is its virtue because it does lend itself to you know giving people who are in acute um, psychiatric distress immediate relief mm -hmm. it's virtue it 
it's, uh, it doesn't require lengthy preparation or much of a time commitment. Um, it's safe. But that's also its problem because ketamine addiction is a real thing. Uh, I see it quite a bit in New York City. Mm-hmm. I've had many patients who have been struggling with it. And the reason being is because it's very quick and reliable. And unlike other psychedelics, there isn't a refractory period afterwards. So if you, for example, take psilocybin, for a few days afterwards, if you were to take mm-hmm. more mushroom, mm. um, you would not feel it. Same with LSD. Ketamine, you can continue taking it and 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 taking it and, taking it <laughs> and maintain the experience. Mm. And that's, um, you know, that's one of the reasons that it can lead to so many problems for people. They, they really enjoy that state, much as some people might really enjoy the chemical mindfulness of alcohol. Mm. and just stay stay in alcohol land right. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Some people want to stay in ketamine land. I don't want to, actually. <laughs> but <okay. laughs> well, that, That's good for you. Some, some people do. It probably has to do with the way you're approaching it. Mm-hmm. You're approaching it from a place of, I want to use this as a tool mm-hmm. for getting healthier. And, uh, I mean, you've also done your homework. You've attended Horizons. You've right. done your research. And, I heard your talks. And you're aware that there are risks <laughs> with this, and I should treat it with respect. I'm only going to get it from a doctor. I mean, you're not going to Bergheim and using At ketamine the moment, no. cocaine, right? You're, <laughs> no. Yeah, you're using it in a very restricted restricted way. But, I mean, I, I never go there, to be honest. But, I mean, that's one thing I can never... If I would imagine doing this and being at a place like this, speaking of set and setting, I cannot imagine for a second to be in a club situation. I mean, maybe some people can do that. I could not. It's like almost like you have cement in your veins or anything. You can't move. Why would you do this in a club? But that's a whole other thing we have to do. (laughs) Another time. I wanted to know what other studies you're working on right now. I think you have a couple of studies related to ketamine at the moment where you go back and forth between um, New York at the moment and upstate. So the primary study is a study investigating cocaine dependence Mm -hmm. and examining how a few infusions of ketamine at quite high doses might help um, disrupt cocaine addiction in the context of two kinds of psychotherapy. One being a therapy aimed at helping people envision a new life for themselves and set new goals and and motivate themselves. The other being a mindfulness training platform where they learn various meditation techniques Mm -hmm. and mindfulness perspectives. So that, that study has been going on for many years. It should be completing soon. Um, it builds on some of the early work that I did, did a clinical trial with, with ketamine for cocaine dependence as well as some lab work. The other study, the study that started a few years after this cocaine one, is a study with opioid users, people who are addicted to heroin or prescription painkillers. And it's examining whether ketamine can help transition them to abstinence and transition them to a medicine called naltrexone, which if someone is taking naltrexone, the effects of heroin or prescription painkillers are not, are not felt. 
Naltrexone is an opioid blocker. So if it's in the system, if a person were to slip and use heroin or morphine or any other opioid, they wouldn't feel it. Mm -hmm. And so the risk of um, complete relapse of becoming dependent on again is, is reduced. But also people know if they have that in their system, they're less likely to, to seek it out because it would be a waste of money. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a study that involves quite intense, long infusions of ketamine in, a, in the context of more of a psychedelic context more of a psychedelic framework where the experience is more central mm -hmm. and there is some therapy, but the therapy is more aimed at keeping people on naltrexone afterwards. And the final study, which started just about a year and a half ago is a study with um, alcohol users. And we're using the same model um, that I mentioned with the cocaine study, where we do these two types of therapy and a few high dose infusions. But this study is also designed to investigate whether ketamine and the psychotherapy interact together in a synergistic way, mm -hmm. meaning whether they somehow complement one another oh, okay. um, such that the sum is greater than the parts. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a forearm study with a placebo. One group gets ketamine and therapy. One group gets ketamine without therapy. One group gets placebo with therapy. One group gets placebo without therapy. Yeah, those are the primary studies right now mm -hmm. that I'm involved in. Wow. I'm also quite interested in examining the experience of ketamine and how it might enrich the, the psychotherapy process. So looking at different psychoactive effects, looking at mystical type experiences, dissociative experiences, near-death experiences um, associated with ketamine. And how these might help people. And what I found in, in that regard is that mystical type experiences seem to be very important in both laboratory and clinical contexts for the therapeutic effects of ketamine on, on addiction. And mystical type experiences meaning the sense of oneness with things, the sense of something sacred, um, going beyond space and time, uh, a very positive feeling, be it ecstasy or joyfulness or peace or bliss, a sense of ineffability, meaning it can't be put into words. It's beyond, mm -hmm. beyond categories, beyond language. So looking at whether that experience can be, can be helpful has, has, um, has really been quite interesting. We've also found that ineffability seems to be one of the most important aspects of the mystical type experience for addiction. That there's something about not being able to put the experience into words of it being beyond our usual understanding has particular therapeutic value for addiction. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, um, it seems like this is the start anyway of like a whole new perception of therapy in general, right? I mean, with any kind of psychedelics that are just being researched as, as we speak. So, um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much. It was really interesting. And I'm sure we have you on the show yeah, thank you. very soon again. Great. Good to see you.